Well, it's our last episode of 2023. It was a full year for the Eagle. I mean, we hit 150 episodes. We won an award, the best podcast from the New York Press Association. And we delved into some of the most important journalism the Times Union has ever done. I hope you'll stick with us in 2024. I'm Jessica Marshall, and I am looking forward to another great year of the Eagle. We've got lots in store. But before we let the ball drop on 2023, we have got one more packed episode of the Eagle. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Whether or not you saw the Barbie movie this year, the Barbie mania that ensued after its release was really hard to ignore. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed Mattel toy character was literally everywhere, from billboards and commercials to store shelves. The movie was a massive hit, breaking box office records left and right. It was the top-grossing film worldwide in 2023, making a massive $1.4 billion globally. Barbie Mania also helped Mattel's bottom line, rocketing sales up 9.3% in the third quarter of 2023. And that stirred the long-dormant Barbie Liberation Organization. We're an international group of children's toys that are revolting against the companies that made us. We've turned against our creators because they use us to brainwash kids. They build us in a way that perpetuates gender-based stereotypes. Let's rewind 30 years now. In 1993, an activist group calling themselves the Barbie Liberation Organization made headlines. San Diego's number one source for news. Seven-year-old Zag Zevlin thought this doll was a factory mistake, but it was soon discovered this G.I. Joe was in fact ambushed by the Barbie Liberation Organization. He's in disguise. In press releases, the group claims to have gotten 300 altered Barbies and G.I. Joes onto store shelves in 43 states. This This group of creative and tech-savvy activists bought up a bunch of talking Barbies and G.I. Joes, which at the time were some of the hottest toys on the market. They switched out their voice boxes, and then they put them back on the shelves. I donated my voice to a G.I. Joe, because they want to be free too. They don't want to say all that violent war stuff. Now he says what I used to say. Want to go shopping? I love school, don't you? So Barbie talked like G.I. Joe, and G.I. Joe talked like Barbie. Kids and their parents got a bit of a surprise when they opened up their new toys. 30 years later, the Barbie Liberation Organization was at it again. After the Barbie movie came out in the summer, they purchased about 300 Barbies, and they altered their appearances and accessories to transform them into what they called eco-warrior Barbies. So basically, the vision of Barbie went from Greta Gerwig's to Greta Thunberg's. Then they put them back on store shelves. 
several of them popped up in big box stores here in the Capital Region. They sent another wave of them out near Christmas. And we here at the Times Union found out about it after several readers alerted us to some unexpected purchases. So the Eco Warrior Barbie is a Barbie doll that the story goes is made out of mushrooms instead of being made out of plastic. And she's made in the image of five women who have all been arrested multiple times for eco-defense. That's Igor Vamos. He's a member of the Barbie Liberation Organization, and he's also a professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He's a self-described culture jammer. He joined the Times Union's business editor, Rick Carlin, on The Eagle this week to talk about the BLO's latest hijinks. Made of mushrooms, she's the best. Eco Warrior Barbie. Putting bad guys to the test. Eco Warrior Barbie. Do you have the bolt cutters? Yeah. We got it. So, doing things like the most famous one is Greta Thunberg, you know, the um, Swedish teenager who started the school strike for the climate, but then also has now gone on to do lots of direct action, civil disobedience, things like uh, blockading coal mines, things like things like that. Um, but there were four other eco-activists too. One is called Phoebe Plummer, and she's famous for uh, being a member of the group called Just Stop Oil, throwing tomato soup on, on famous pieces of art. In her box, uh, when she's an eco-warrior Barbie doll, she comes with a painting and a little can of soup and a U-lock for her neck, because she's also quite famous for locking herself down to, you know, pieces of uh, equipment and to banks that are supporting environmental destruction. So that's the kind of toy that that we have with the eco-warrior Barbies. We have another one that's Julia Butterfly Hill, who's famous for having sat in a tree for over two years to keep it from getting cut down. So it's it's very much like about it being funny, but also about it being serious and having a serious message. I saw one of the videos where one of the Barbie dolls, I think, is accessorizing herself with what I think she described them as as fashionable bolt cutters. Yes. I guess it's it's play for the young, aspiring ecological defender. I'm curious, how did this come about? What was the origin of this? We all know that the Barbie movie came out to great fanfare uh, earlier this year. Was that what really inspired this? All, all the hype around Barbie, where it was in the top of people's minds just because of the, the sheer torrent of, of media? It's movie? definitely what, what happened. In fact, about a year ago, I think I had heard that the Barbie movie was coming out and it was going to clearly be a big spectacle. And, you know, I've been watching, uh, you know, these shows that were coming out on the streaming platforms that were about things that happened in the 90s that were kind of cool and weird. And you know, there's these nostalgic shows. And, and I thought, oh, I participated in this thing that was interesting that I think would make a good doc series, the Barbie Liberation Organization. And so I started to plan to make a film about right. the 1993 thing. But in the process of doing it, I started to talk to people who uh, seemed like they'd make sense to interview, like like Daryl Hannah. In the 90s, I mean, she was the closest thing we had to a living uh, Barbie. I mean, in terms yeah. of her look, not in terms of her intellect or the way she acted. 
I actually went and talked to Daryl Hannah, who was enthusiastic. She remembered the Barbie Liberation Organization uh -huh. in the 90s. But she said, when we visited her, she said, we have to do something now. The Barbie Liberation Organization should do something right now. And so uh, we had about five weeks to do something for the launch of the Barbie movie and to try to right. um, get an alternative message in because, you know, the Barbie movie was about hyping the idea that Barbie was now feminist, that Barbie could be anything. It's great to have that message, but it's also very much just on the surface because right underneath that surface treatment of feminism, you have a doll that's made out of plastic, which is basically oil. I mean, it's right. a derivative of it's oil. A petroleum product. Yeah, and it's made mostly by very low paid workers in what we would typically call sweatshops. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of them are in places in the poorer parts of the world, places mm -hmm. like Mexico, you know. So um, just across the border, Mattel has a bunch of factories. They have factories in China. And we wanted to do something that would protest uh, that. And since Daryl is a uh, environmentalist, we started with the plastics issue. But there's also a labor sure. issue. It, there is also the idea that the whole enterprise is really about promoting consumption given the environmental crisis I, I was curious was it easy to get to get these into the stores I, I i saw one of the videos where they're wheeling the shopping cart it was quite funny uh, it sounds like it was pretty easy you just kind of sidled into the stores and put them on the shelves it, it was very easy and yeah. it didn't even hide the fact that uh, yeah. we videotaping and i've talked to uh you know all the people who did it all over the uh -huh. country not a single person had a problem bringing them into the stores Absolutely. have you gotten feedback from mattel or, or the big box uh retailers on this or have they kind of stayed stayed out of it they've they've stayed completely quiet they're silent that's the typical tactic of yeah. uh big company yeah. like Mattel these days, they're not going to respond because that just uh, adds fuel to the fire. And I mean, there is a way in which we are also advertising Barbie. For Barbies, <laughs> I suspect, because I, I did hear from some folks who had purchased these dolls and they were they were quite uh, amused. They, they bought them and they purchased them and they're going to give them to their kids. They really liked them. And I suspect that maybe after the story ran, there might be some other people who are, are going to the stores looking for eco warrior uh barbies i hope they're not disappointed because i understand there's only about 10 in our readership yeah. area so yeah, it, it's one of the keys for this thing was that all of the eco warrior barbies are people who have been arrested for their environmental defense that was one of the litmus tests yeah. we wanted yeah. to have it be transgressive enough so that it's the type of sure. thing that mattel would have a hard time actually embracing making one because that's, you know, with Mattel's message that they're, you, n girls now can be anything, you can be anything is the tagline for Barbie. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And it's true. And it's come a long way since 1993. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's also like ignoring some basic facts and the, and the basic reality, which is that, you know, we've got this massive environmental crisis and that we're not... And the pollutants that are caused by plastics are something that the kids who are playing with those toys are going to have to deal with. We had lots of toys that weren't plastic 50 years ago. There, it wasn't like there weren't toys. <laughs> um, there were lots of toys. Sure. And so we could go back to something like that and actually go back to it with all kinds of modern materials that now can be made out of biodegradables that work similarly to plastic. It just would cost them a little more money.
what better time to do it than now when they had a, over a billion dollars profit from that movie and they're they're riding a high, you know, they could be the ones to set the tone for the industry for the future. What's next for Barbie? Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, the Barbie Liberation Organization might take a rest with Mattel and Barbie for a little while, but we are not going to rest on G.I. Joe because the, the, we always started with the intention of criticizing militarism and criticizing G.I. Joe as a, as a toy that teaches kids war from a very young age. And the original Barbie Liberation Organization actually got its start because uh, one of the oldest members at the time, this is in the 1993, there was a, a woman who is a Holocaust survivor who's part of the original group. She was about 88 years old at the time. She's died in the in the late 90s. But at the time, she said, well, I don't give a shit about Barbie. I mean, she didn't say I don't give a shit. She said, I don't care. She said in her old Hungarian accent, I don't care about Barbie. What about G.I. Joe? And I feel like in her memory, it's our duty to finally do the what about G.I. Joe component and to give that real justice. Because Hasbro, the company that makes G.I. Joe, does have a series of new G.I. Joe movies coming out. There's one that's in combination with Marvel and the Transformers. And it just got pushed back from release this summer to release maybe in two more years. They said because of the uh, strikes in Hollywood. But uh, this is something that we feel very strongly at the Barbie Liberation Organization might be a more offensive toy at this point than Barbie. Um, especially when you look at what's happening in the world right Given now. Given the state of world affairs, yeah. It's, so it exactly. sounds like Hasbro has picked up on the on the Mattel um, movie model of merging the uh, the toys and the movie themes into a very uh, large franchise. That's prime prime for you guys yeah they, um, they reframe themselves as a as an intellectual property company that's what right, ip yeah. yeah we're yeah, no longer a toy company right. we're ip company so you know what well, you, you might be able to go out and buy gi joe trousers at the gap or something you know uh th that kind of thing cross-marketing strategies no longer toys it's just everything using the brand you know it, it'll be interesting i think to see what we what we end up coming up with together you can read more about the Barbie Liberation Organization and everything else that we cover at timesunion.com and on all of our social channels. We are going to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we will go over the news and restaurant highlights of 2023. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. 
All right, we are joined now by our editor-in-chief, Casey Seiler. It is the end of 2023. I can't believe that it's uh, flown by. But as such, this is kind of the time of year when we look back and reflect on all of the great work that we've done in the past year and the work that had the most impact on our community that we cover. And let's talk about some of the stories that uh, are mentioned in this uh, sort of impact report that we've written up. We'll start with restraint and seclusion, which actually made a really big impact this year. Tell us, um, tell us about that story, and then, and then, sort of what the impact was. Oh, yeah, I mean, this was a series that began actually near the end of 2022, and uh, a number of reporters worked on it. Emily Munson, Ying Zhao, and Matt Rochelow, um, key among them, looking at these tactics used by, um, you know, usually uh, educators or folks who work in facilities that work with troubled young people, um, but sometimes just in normal public schools. The, they are referred to as restraint and seclusion. Of course, restraint, exactly what it sounds like, holding somebody down, you know, in a, in a prone position if they are acting out or acting up and seclusion, putting them in uh, a space uh, with a door that they can't open. You know, the, it could be anything from the, the kind of stereotypical rubber room to a type of chair that they might be told to stay in, and it is built to keep them in. Now, um, these tactics, uh, which are often used uh, or are supposed to be used in times of crisis, uh, are often not very well trained. They have resulted in, uh, you know, physical injuries uh, for young people. Obviously, psychological trauma, especially if uh, a kid is troubled, is um, is something you need to worry about. In some cases, uh, a disturbing number of cases, death has occurred or serious injury. And these stories, as noted, they ran sort of uh, in the, um, the the late part of 2022 into 2023. Um, they uh, have collected a number of awards, but I think the the impact that shows the most is in July, the state's Board of Regents, which of course oversees education in New York, unanimously passed new regulations that are going to prevent teachers from restraining students based down or isolating them, which were you know the two of the big problems that we wrote about. Obviously, there have been activists that have been talking about the problems with these techniques for for quite a while. But I have to think that these uh, excellent, really comprehensive stories help to focus attention on these tactics and um, and helped to to, if not completely end, certainly curtail their use in New York and also require uh, do a much better job, basically, of enforcing the laws or, that are on the books in terms of reporting episodes where they do have to be used and making sure that staffers do a proper training to use them. So just, you know, remarkable work all around. Absolutely. Really impactful journalism. And I do want to add that I didn't mention prior to jumping into this story that this story and the others that we're going to be talking about in this segment, we've done previous podcast episodes about, and you can also go back to timesunion.com and read all about them. So I highly encourage folks to do that. Um, the next story that made a big impact, um, it's kind of more of a national story, the migrant crisis. It was a really big story this year across the United States, um, but it did uh, come to upstate New York as well and impact the upstate New York community. So tell us about how that played out here and um, what exactly happened with DocGo. 
Well, obviously, a, a number of reporters have been involved in covering the impact of the migrant crisis as it has kind of worked its way up the Hudson Valley, right? The first stories we did, I think, were in May about the, you know, the first busloads of migrants out of um, New York City where the social services have become overwhelmed. And of course, there was a lot to cover there, a, a bogus claim by a woman who said that veterans were getting kicked out of their motel. Um, and then, of course, more arrivals in the capital region. And through it all, Josh Solomon has been um, looking hard at the, the performance of DocGo, which is this company that got a massive uh, contract with New York City to essentially handle logistics, shelter, feeding, provision of services, provision of healthcare for um, the migrants uh, as, they, as they're kept in New York City, in the Hudson Valley, in the capital region, wherever they are, they are essentially warehoused, because I think that's probably a fair term of art for what's going on right now. In uh, the uh, late summer, early fall, Josh Solomon, who is with our Capitol Bureau, noted that uh, Anthony Capone, who is the CEO of DotGo, was making fairly extravagant claims about uh, two, two potential investors about uh, the chance that the company was going to catch on with a federal contract um, to really kind of explo explode the potential client base, as it were, of migrants that, that they could be working with. And Josh also noted a problem with Mr. Capone's professional resume. He said that he had earned a graduate degree of, in artificial intelligence from Clarkson University. In fact, he had not. He had said this a number of times, and he claimed that, whoops, it was a, a misstatement, as it were, an error on his resume, but it was uh, an error that he made a number of times in a number of interviews that he did and on and on. I think it's absolutely fair to say that um, this revelation led to uh, Mr. Capone departing as the CEO of DotGo, although he was subsequently brought back in sort of a consulting role by the company. So part of what we do uh, as journalists is call people on their stuff, shall we say. And this, um, this was a, a, a classic example of Josh doing just that kind of watchdog journalism. All right, the final story that I want to touch on, I have had some hands in as well. This one's been going on for five years now, uh, just hit the five-year mark of the Schoharie limo crash. Um, and this year, Nauman Hussein was convicted of second-degree manslaughter in the deaths of 20 people who were killed in that crash. Um, but the story is so much bigger than that. So tell us, you know, what happened this year with this and, and what were we, what role did we play in reporting it? You know, this is a this is a story that will continue to to examine the story of the Schoharie limo crash. But um, it felt climactic of sorts um, back in the spring when Nauman Hussein was put on trial and was convicted and subsequently sentenced and sent off to state prison for his role in um, allowing that decrepit stretch limousine to remain on the road. It was uh, yet another example of how Larry Rulison, who is a, a business reporter who has followed this case with the zeal and the doggedness of the best kind of investigative reporter, which all reporters really ought to be, and uh, his his coverage of the trial, of the trial's aftermath, of the personalities involved, whether that's you know the defendant or the um, prosecutor, Susan Mallory from out in Schoharie County, 
and of course the the families of the the young people who lost their lives in that accident has just been um, remarkable. Indeed, it is some very powerful journalism. Uh, there are more stories that are on this annual impact report. Read about them on our website. Um, but I do want to ask you before we let you go here. Can you talk about why we do this report every year? Like, why is it so important to us? The point of this impact report is to to provide, if you will, uh, a kind of in, investor's report in our journalism. We couldn't do this without subscribers. Uh, subscribers sustain our journalistic mission. And um, we believe that news consumers should get, as it were, not just information, not just colorful writing, but they should see the impact of our journalism on the communities we cover. And these three stories and others that are included in my impact report, which is posted on our website right now, are all stellar examples of that. Absolutely. Head over to timesunion.com to read that. Casey, thank you so much. We will check back in with you next year. Happy New Year. Thanks. Again, you can read more about anything that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or on any of our social channels. Finally, let's wrap up this episode and 2023 with a little dish on the Capital Region dining scene. Joining me now is Table Hopping's Steve Barnes. It's been a while since we caught up with you on The Eagle here, and I am thrilled to have you back on because I'm dying to know what was the biggest trend that you noticed over the last year in restaurant news? Well, if we can nudge that back to the very end of 22, in late November of 22, a rest, huge restaurant, 15,000 square feet, opened in a former Kmart in Latham. It's called The Scarlet Knife. And they walked out and said, we are going to make you pay. And their filet mignon was $98. Oof. Now, instantly, I wrote that on their opening day. And within one day, they dropped it from 98 the 78, which tells me there was an awful lot of margin built in. Right. Uh, and now a slightly smaller filet uh, you can get for 58. So they, they've nudged down. But elsewhere around the region, there was a, a real sense of things are more expensive because I did a story a few years back on how the heck did we get to a $15 bacon cheeseburger? And I had restaurants break down their costs that went into bacon cheeseburgers averaging 15. Well, there's a new place uh, that just opened called the Delaware in Albany, and their bacon cheeseburger, 20 bucks. Oh, boy. On top of that, I've also seen there more and more fees because have been cropping up. Restaurants are adding credit card fees. And let me absolutely say most of them are doing it wrong. There's very strict rules about from the state about what you can do and what you can't do. And you absolutely cannot just put a little note at the bottom that says a 3.5% surcharge will be added to credit cards. Now, you can say, we'll give you a discount if you pay cash, and that's easy enough to, re to refigure at the register. You just press a button and give them more change, and they're happy because they got more change. But you have to tell them, you know, at the gas station, we're used to it. You've got a credit price and a cash price right next to one another, and we're used to that. But no restaurant's going to clutter up their menu that says, you know, $10 for a salad, and $10.40 for a salad if you pay with a card. There's also another force at play here, the sub-trend, if you will, the idea of exclusivity, creating exclusivity around a dining experience. Can you tell us more about that? 
that subtrend has a name. That name is the room effect. R-O-O-M, room effect. Okay. In Saratoga, we had the coat room, which was wanted to be all hush-hush, and they wouldn't really tell you where the address was, and there was no sign on the door, and there's this members-only exclusive, and people are paying it. The membership, which gets you... Uh, it, it's in a mixed-use building, so you get to use the gym and you can go up onto the roof deck and you have preferred reservations. But the membership is $300 a month, $3,600 a year uh, to be a member of the exclusive coat room, and people were paying it. That's room number one. And because because we're in journalism, that means things have to come in three. So I got, promise, I got three. So we got the coat room in Saratoga. Then in Troy, we had the chandelier room. A guy took a, a dive bar, he painted the walls black, the ceiling white, and then bought 26 identical chandeliers from Amazon and hung them from the ceiling. Fancy. And it's, yes, and in, in order to encourage a fancy crowd, oh, it was only open from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, Friday and Saturday. And in order to ex encourage exclusivity, average drinks like your martini or your old-fashioned, $23. Oof. Easily the most expensive drinks out anywhere around here. People may charge 18 these days, but 23. And their signature drink was a plastic pouch with a glow-in-the-dark food-safe light bulb in it that they poured four shots in and then juice or mixer, other mixer of your choice. So you were walking around in your swanky clothes with a plastic bag of booze, and it was $27. That in and of itself is shocking, but the thing about the food-safe glow-in-the-dark... Glow stick? That's that's a new one. I've never heard that one before. Yeah. They closed after two months. Okay. So clearly not a sustainable business <laughs> model. Um, but there's a third one, right? There is. A third. There's the Roosevelt Room. Uh, it's from the Moscatello family who've owned Moscatello's Italian Family Restaurant in North Greenbush for 29 years now. And right across the street, they built a small strip plaza that has, you know, like a, a bridal salon and a real estate office and a and a manicurist and and at the end is this really fancy place called the roosevelt room and it's it's quite quite stylish and it instantly became the most expensive restaurant in rensselaer county i mean entrees average like 58 dollars. It's, it's very stylish it's quite handsome and the food can be exceptional but they're really swinging for the fences and the people involved are fairly young with not a whole lot of experience and they're trying to go toe-to-toe uh, with the big ones like Yono's and 677 Prime uh, and 15 Church up in Saratoga. So uh, we'll see. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. It's a fascinating trend. Do you see it continuing? Like, do you see... You no. One of the things they always said about Albany and the Albany area is there's so many state workers that have, you know, solid middle-class incomes, except unless you started early at Regeneron or something... <laughs> or chip fab up in Malta, we don't have a lot of young people with disposable income or the super rich people who can afford both kids and $300 for dinner for two. I don't know how sustainable it is, but then again, I, I never expected people would be willing to pay the, what they are for apartments uh, in downtown Albany and downtown Troy. Yeah, it feels like Bay Area vibes are creeping in. <laughs> yes. All right. So those are the trends that you have observed for the last decade or so. You have been keeping an open, closed restaurant list. And given that it is December, where are we with that? Give, give us some of the highlights of your open and closed list this year. And mind you, these are independent restaurants, unless it's the first of a chain. Okay. Like in my list this year, I will include Ruth's Chris, the steakhouse, 
even though it's a chain because we've never had one before. Gotcha. Some of the closings this year, we'll start with closings. We had the briefly open place called the Painted Lemon in Clifton Park, which lasted less than a year. Musa was in Troy. It was an Eastern European uh, restaurant. They were they were there for 16 years. Much more briefly, there was Gracie's Kitchen, a uh, nice little diner in Voorheesville. Voorheesville, you will find out, is like a hotbed of things. They keep popping up on this list. Sperry's, the venerable place in Saratoga, was used to be owned by an ownership group that included the former mayor. Well, they closed and said, we, we've got a buyer. Nope, we don't. We've got a buyer. Nope, we don't. So they've been closed since March, and they're still saying temporarily. And then, of course, there is the great eternal mystery of Jack's Oyster House. It closed in August of uh, 22 for renovations. They were planning to reopen for what would have been their 110th anniversary in January of this year. Jack's is still closed. Nobody's seen any work trucks. Uh, and many, many, many people uh, who have gift cards have been un- unable to get any word on whether they will be able to redeem them. All right, let's do restaurant openings now. Slicks is owned by a 78-year-old woman and her 79-year-old husband. They've owned it since 1970. Tried to retire a year ago. They did. They tried to sell it. Didn't work. So they said, we're opening it for one more year. So they're back at it, making four kinds of giant sandwiches and beer. That's all. Ama Cucina, a Mexican restaurant in downtown Albany that was closed by the pandemic, came back in early fall. So they were, after being closed for almost three years, one of Albany's most popular breakfast spots, Cafe Madison, moved three doors down. They tripled the space and it's still packed. Del Mar, which got a really, really good Italian restaurant called Pastina last year, uh, has just had a brand new fancy place called Corre Kitchen. has really adventurous international food by uh, the chef who grew up in Honduras and he named it after his hometown and his wife. They met in San Francisco and came back here. Uh, so we've got a couple more things. Nice to see the uh, Smith's Public House in, in Cohoes opened. And then one that I'm really excited about is a place called Sushi by Boo. And it's uh, it's in the basement of City Beer Hall in Albany, uh, what used to be their Speakeasy 518. It's a really excellent sort of wood and stone and metal grotto down there with a great soapstone bar. And it's a, a New York City chain that's being licensed to City Beer Hall. All of their fish comes straight from Japan. Oh, And wow. it is some of the most exceptional sushi I've had. I have to go there. Just the chef just hands it over to you. Here you go. And they even ask, they say, don't use chopsticks because we put sauces and seasonings on it. Use your finger and here's here's a wet, really nice little wet napkin for you. And it's, it's all fingers and he's just handing it to you. Okay, I'm really hungry now. <laughs> Let's move on to what's coming in 2024. What can we look forward to? The Albany Pump Station, one of the original brew pubs in Albany. Its owner was dying earlier this year and he made arrangements for to sell his building and all of his equipment the Common Roots, which is a fast-growing South Glens Falls brewery. But now it's under heavy renovation, and Common Roots at the pump station will be opening, they hope, mid to late January. Finally, Hattie's is going to open in Albany, but the liquor license is delaying things, so it may not be until February or March. But there was a big to-do when the sign went up, right? Because amazingly, that, that sign went up in 1933. And the same local sign company in Castleton on Hudson came 
took it down and recreated the sign. So now it looks just like Lombardo's, except it says Hattie's. Wow. And finally, we'll do it. We'll do a shout out to my mom. We love there your mom. Th- yes, there are three things in Voorheesville that are all likely happening in the spring. One, Romo's, which is in Glenmont, is opening, took over the former Smith's Tavern, Smitty's Tavern in Voorheesville, and they're going to open there. And my mother dutifully sent me a, a cell phone photo the other day of, of a digger out front. So she says, this is progress. <laughs> and, and then Business for Good, it's Saratoga Foundation that brings restaurants under its wing. They own Hattie's now. And they're opening Blackbird's Tavern and Blackbird's Bike Cafe, two separate businesses across the street from one another, also in Voorheesville. And Blackbird's is the name of the high school mascot. That is exciting news. We look forward to what's coming in 2024. But before we let you go, take us out with one really excellent holiday suggestion, holiday restaurant suggestion. Normally, I'd say gift cards. Okay. And they're reliable ones. If, if somebody's worth spending some money on, Give them something that will spur them to go to a place they wouldn't normally go. Even if you give them a $75 gift card to a really nice place, it may not cover the whole thing, but all of a sudden their dinner costs them half to a third of what it would. So push them in that direction with a gift card. But better yet, get together with people. Say, hey, let's meet for a drink. Let's go out to dinner. You know, I'll take you to dinner for the holidays and you take me out for my birthday next year. Spend time together. I love that. That's a great way to end it. Thank you so much, Steve. (laughs) You're welcome. For more restaurant news, visit timesunion.com slash table hopping and subscribe to Steve's weekly table hopping newsletter. All right, that's it for this week and this year. We'll be back at the top of 2024 with more from inside the Times Union newsroom. Have a safe and happy new year. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Rick Carlin, Casey Seiler, and Steve Barnes for their contributions to this episode.